well, why can't we just all get along? If you happen to watch the recent 2020 presidential debate that was on television earlier this week, I imagine you were left filled with all sorts of emotions and perplexing thoughts. Regardless, if you are in favor of one presidential candidate over the other or you're simply resigned to no longer care, you don't have to be a U.S. history scholar or a seasoned political analyst or work on Capitol Hill to figure out how sharply and resentfully divided two men's were on a whole host of issues in our present state of our country. Not just our present state, but also the future. You know, in 2020, the United States of America might be more of an oxymoron than we might realize. Now, politics have certainly been a topic that have caused division in our country's history, but politics do not stand alone. Division happens all over the globe every day. In fact, even in Jesus' earthly ministry, he was often the controversy of many conversations. In fact, when Jesus showed up, the crowds, it says in the Gospel of John, were divided about who he really was. See, division, or bearing the brunt of a divisive person, does affect everyone at some level. Some divisions are for the better, and some divisions are for the worse. Some divisions are so bad that they cut people at their core and leave a painful mark on their lives forever. For example, every year division occurs amongst large companies that decide to head in a different direction than the previous owner's vision. Uh, They begin to franchise or sell off a portion of the business to a foreign entity. Employers decide to downsize and reassign job descriptions to hundreds of people. Others get paid more, while others get laid off. For some people, it's the happiest year of their life, and for others, not so much. Division also occurs in families, too. Sibling rivalries show up, and they show their ugly heads as early as kids playing with toys. But given enough time, given enough years, without honest conversation and forgiveness, sooner or later you'll see a knockdown dragout over a family's inheritance later in life. Husbands and wives are, of course, not exempt from division either. Uh, to our great sorrow, uh, how many weddings will we have attended in the last 15 to 20 years that are now sadly heading towards a separation or an ugly divorce. And I would say even more sadly, churches aren't exempt from sinful divisions either. Churches can actually be the place where the silliest and foolish reasons for divisions can occur, can't they? About five years ago, a blog was created and a Twitter feed began with a question on Christians sharing the most hilarious and ridiculous things that their congregation fought over. Now, the poll had 25 stories, but for the sake of time, I'm going to give you six of the headlines. Headline number one, a deacon accusing another deacon for sending an anonymous letter and deciding to settle the matter in the parking lot. Headline number two, 
a 45-minute heated argument over the type of filing cabinet to purchase. Black or brown, two, three, or four drawers. My favorite, headline number three, a fight over which picture of Jesus to put in the foyer. (laughs) My question is, who took the picture? (laughs) Headline number four, business meeting arguments about whether the church should purchase a weed eater or not. It took two business meetings to resolve. Headline number five, Some church members left the church because one church member hid the vacuum cleaner from them. (laughs) Ironically, I showed up here yesterday and there was a vacuum cleaner in the hallway. It resulted in a major fight and church split. Headline number six, a dispute over whether the church should allow people to wear black t-shirts since black is the color of the devil, so they say. Fights and quarrels. Disorder and division. Where on earth does it begin? What causes quarrels? What causes fights among us? And what must Christians do in order to preserve the unity that we share in the life of a local church? Well, to answer these questions, we're going to look in God's Word. So open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Now, if you're joining us this morning, we're actually picking up on a sermon series that many of us began back in March. But due to unforeseen and unusual circumstances, it appears that a little eruption has happened with our sermon series. However, our plan beginning today is to pick up where I left off in mid-March. That's where we are, Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. This is God's word. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And as we study our passage this morning, my hope is that we will have a better understanding of who Jesus Christ is and the preciousness of our unity around him. If you're taking notes, my two main points for you this morning. Points number one. 
preserve unity in the church by staying focused on its primary mission. Preserve unity in the church by staying focused on its primary mission. That's verses 1 to 4. And point number 2, preserve unity in the church by staying focused on Christ, the God-man. Preserve unity in the church by staying focused on Christ, the God-man. That's verses 5 to 11. So point one, preserve unity in the church by staying focused on its primary mission. Again, look with me, starting in verse 1. We read, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Right here in verse 1, Paul begins to remind the Philippian believers of the benefits they possess as a result of being found in Christ. Uh, He mentions things like encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation, or that word can also mean fellowship in the Spirit, affection and sympathy. Now, Paul here is not saying, hey, Philippians, you need to go out and find these benefits. You need to go find encouragement, find comfort, find sympathy. No, rather, Paul is reminding them that these believers already possessed these benefits. They already belonged to them. If you recall back to Acts 16, if you haven't read Philippians in a while, Acts chapter 16 gives you kind of the backdrop of what's going on. Paul had founded this church through his preaching ministry and his second missionary journey. And after about 10 years had elapsed from the time he stepped foot in Philippi to the time he writes this letter, he writes to the congregation to let them know how he's doing and to thank them for their gospel partnership. So Philippians serves for us much like a modern-day missionary letter would be about a sending church and its missionary, a a relationship to talk about the ministry and how things are going. But in this letter, he starts off like he does many of his New Testament epistles with a friendly greeting, a greeting that describes who he is and usually who's with him and who he's writing to. So turn back to Philippians 1 real quick. Philippians chapter 1. We read in Philippians 1, verses 1 to 2, what is contained in this greeting, and I think will help serve for us a better understanding of Philippians 2, 1. We read, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you're a note taker or a circler in your Bible, this word here, saint, is super important. It's on the second half of verse 1. The word just simply means holy or holy ones, Uh, those who have been set apart for God to serve God and to worship God. And this speaks about the special relationship that God who is holy, right? That's what we've been singing about. That's what we've been praying about. God, who is holy, has with his redeemed people. 
those people that are precious to him, his prized possession, uh, people that he sets apart for his holy purposes. And so Paul combines this beautiful privilege of being called a saint with another description that speaks about the unbreakable union that believers have with their Savior. Did you notice that? He says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. That means this, when Paul's writing to this church, he's not writing to just a bunch of religious people wanting to fill up some oxygen and space in a Roman colony every once in a while. No, these men and women were just like us, hell-bound sinners, running from God, rebelling against his rule, and then they were saved. They were given a 180 turn from running from God and now running to God. They had been saved and changed by the grace and mercy of God. You know, some of the members of this church we know from Acts 16 are Lydia, and then here in Philippians 2 and 4 of Epaphroditus. And of course, if they had driver's license, if they had a police officer or a Roman soldier pull them over and they're I guess donkey or horse or carriage or whatever, show me your ID, it would have said Lydia or Epaphroditus. But according to heaven, Lydia and Epaphroditus and everyone else in this room today who trust in Christ has a different dog tag, a different identification. It is this, chosen in Christ, holy and beloved. That's a beautiful truth that you and I need to savor in this morning. That's an identity that no one can take from you because only God in Christ can give it to you. Brothers and sisters, do you lack joy in the Lord today? Have you been singing these songs today like a a dry repetition? Well, this would be my encouragement to you. Don't go drink more coffee. Uh, Don't go do more dancing or screaming. Just remember who you are in Christ. See, if you're a Christian, your identity in Christ is your grounds for peace and joy. It's not your American citizenship. It's not your marital status. It's not your political affiliation. It's not your ethnicity or family last name. It's not the title you have in the workplace or the salary you bring home. It's not your GPA in school. It's not how well-behaved or successful your children turned out in life. It's not how popular you are among your friends. It's not how strong your body is or how young you feel. It's not even how many Bible verses you can memorize. Beloved, all those things pale in comparison to our identity of being found in Christ. What does it mean to be found in Christ? It means to be adopted, forgiven, justified, and accepted into God's family. So think about it. Meditate further of what it means to be found in Christ. Maybe maybe you and a friend this week could look up every time that phrase is used in the New Testament and begin to use that as a Bible study to the end of the year. What does it mean that if you are trusting in Christ, you are now in Christ? And I think what you'll find is that's your fuel. That's your joy. That's what will motivate you and I to service and worship. And my hope 
is the same hope that Paul had for the Philippians. My hope is that we will begin to experience together encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the Spirit, affection and sympathy. And that's why Paul encourages them. And he goes on, though, not only to encourage them, but he says, hey, listen, I want to exhort you towards something that would also bring me great joy. Notice what he says in verse 2. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being full accord and of one mind. You know, if you read this letter, it's a very short letter. You could read it in about 12 minutes, and if you're a slower reader, probably 15. Not one time in this letter does Paul ever demand something from the Philippian church. He never insists on anything. The main thing, the only kind of imperative that immediately benefits Paul is that he says, complete my joy. Now again, remember, does Paul come off like self-serving when he says that? I mean, think about it. He's in prison. He's most likely in a Roman prison, being surrounded by the elite security of the day, the imperial guard, as we read in Philippians 1, 12 to 14. But you see, Paul redeemed the time. While he was in prison, people were getting to know who Jesus was while he was in chains, both inside the guard, but also outside the guard. God was using Paul with a ripple effect for gospel good. And so in the midst of this gospel tidal wave being generated through Paul's life, you, you would imagine that Paul would say something like, hey man, send me a blanket. <laughs> you know, send me a home-cooked meal. But you know the only thing he says he wants from them is actually something that would benefit them more than even him. I mean, all the things that he could say. Paul could have grumbled in his heart, hey, I've worked hard for you. I deserve a little reward. I scratched your back. Why don't you scratch mine? And yet, what does he say? Well, he says, I just want you to complete my joy. I just want to keep hammering that in because I want you to see where Paul's heart is. What does it mean when he says complete my joy? Uh, this word means to fill to the top. It means to lack no good thing. Uh, one of the favorite restaurants for me, whether you think I'm from D.C. or not, I'm actually from Georgia, is Cracker Barrel. Now, I haven't been to the one Cracker Barrel that I found on the website. And I think Alma, is it Alma? All right, we need to do a, a, a potluck in Alma sometime. But one of the things I like about Cracker Barrel, beyond checkers in front of a fireplace and goodies in the store, is that while I'm eating that buttery soft biscuit, before I know it, they've got a whole plate ready for another load. And as I'm looking at all these biscuits, they're topping up the sweet tea. Within 30 minutes or so, you will see one happy man. Cracker Barrel always, I would say usually, maybe always, usually, we'll see, hits the spot, makes me a well-fed and happy man. Then what does Paul say? Complete my joy. You want to know what hits the spot? You want to know that fills me up? Be of the same mind. Be of the same love. Be in full accord and of one mind. Now again, for my more avid Bible students in here, is Paul now advocating for some type of uniformity? 
you know, where there's zero tolerance for disagreements? I mean, before we jump to conclusions, we need to know exactly what Paul is referring to. What does he mean that we should be like-minded? What does it mean that he would get joy if they would have the same mind? I mean, is Paul trying to think that local churches should operate like communist governments do? Should Christians agree about every minute thing under the sun in order to, quote, get along? Let me give you a little hermeneutics. That's just the science and art of interpretation. When you read Scripture, you need to interpret Scripture with Scripture. In other words, you don't just pull interpretations out of thin air. And so when we look at this phrase, same mind, same love, full accord, one mind, we need to ask ourselves, has he ever said anything like this in this letter prior to saying it? Because otherwise, if we don't, I mean, this is going to mean this. Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church, we got to wear the same clothes every day. We got to eat at the same lunch spots every day. We got to have the same sports teams, vote the same way, and eradicate all individuality from our lives. But, but I don't think that's what Paul is saying. And let me show you. Go back to Philippians 1, verse 27. Philippians 1, verse 27, I believe, begins his train of thought, even though in our English Bibles there's a chapter division. Philippians 1.27, almost verbatim, word for word, uses this type of sentiment. Look with me again, starting in verse 27. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side, for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. You see, in the midst of Paul being separated from the Philippian church physically, Paul models for us what a godly leader does. He seeks to encourage them spiritually. And what does he do? Well, he exhorts them. He challenges them. He encourages them to persevere together through the persecutions that they were facing and to do it with boldness and in unity. In verse 27, he reminds them to let their lives on earth reflect where their eternal destination lies in heaven. In other words, Paul is saying this, Philippian church, practice what you preach. Live in such a way that commends the gospel you say you believe. In essence, Paul was saying this to the Philippians, Philippians, use your money in such a way that shows you treasure Jesus and his eternal kingdom more than you do worldly treasures and worldly kingdoms. Philippian saints, love and respect your spouses in such a way that shows you desire to please Christ, even if your spouse does not seek to please you. Saints at Philippi, work in your job with diligence and excellence as if Jesus is your ultimate boss and not just when your office manager is looking. Members of CCBC, what was it about your life this past week 
that commended the gospel? What was it about your life this week that showed to others in your life that Christ is precious to you, that he's preeminent in your life? In what ways, beloved, is God dealing with you, causing you to see where your priorities are a little bit out of line and you need to reprioritize where King Jesus belongs? Maybe another flip side of the question is this. Are there any areas of your life today that you're ashamed of letting others see? Whatever that area is, that's the finger of God saying, I want to make this area of your life more beautiful. I want this area of your life to commend the gospel. All of our life, 24-7, seven days a week, is to be a growing attraction that commends Christ to those around us. That's why one of the ways we most commend the gospel in our lives is when we help one another become more like Jesus together. When we are united together by staying focused on the mission together. Paul says that the unity we share, did you catch that? This one spirit and one mind will be preserved when believers are fighting for the faith together. But did you notice how they are to do this? Look at verse 27 again. Standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. A standing firm means to be steadfast. It means to have your feet rooted in God's truth. It means you're staying true to God's truth. It means not giving up. It's not compromising to the world's pressures to throw in the towel. If you've ever noticed pictures in a community after a catastrophic hurricane or a tornado, you'll see that a lot of things are devastated, but a few things are still standing up. Whatever those things were, they were things that were obviously securely fashioned. They were made of substance that could withstand winds. Well, beloved, this image here is the same one in the New Testament for a Christian standing in the face of opposition taking the winds of persecution, the winds of opposition, and standing firm. But then he goes on and he says, striving side by side. Uh, This word was an athletic term that spoke about how to contend in a competition. You know, growing up, me and my brother were avid WCW wrestling fans. My favorite tag team was Rick. Come on now, somebody from the 80s and 90s has got to come out with me. Rick and Scott Steiner, the Steiner brothers, you know, real novel, right? The tag team matches were the best because when one wrestler got tired, if he was able to stretch out that hand, the strong and energetic one could come in and relieve him. But my favorite was when they were both energetic and both in the ring taking out the opposition together. Brothers and sisters, when Paul says striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, he is saying this, when Christians stop fighting with one another and start standing with one another, they are tag-teaming the mission of the gospel. Every local church on planet Earth should have an ambition, 
have a focus to fight together for the gospel. Because if you fight with one another, you shred the power and the commendation of the gospel. Here Paul paints the picture of a unified church staying focused on its primary mission, the faith of the gospel. Well, what does that mean? Well, a church's primary mission is to proclaim and protect the gospel of Jesus Christ. A church should protect the content of the gospel from false teaching. So in joining Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church, we seek to do this first and foremost by having a statement of faith. We have a statement of faith that spells out what we believe the Bible teaches on matters of God, salvation, the scriptures, the church, etc. and so forth. It's used as, a, as a, an example of something we can look at for biblical truth. It helps unify us and protect us from false teaching. But we're also called to boldly proclaim the gospel as we help one another obey Jesus. You see, brothers and sisters, when you join a local church, you are signing up to help others follow Jesus. That means people who are in your church who are not as spiritually mature as you, it is not there for you to look down upon them. It is actually there by God's design for you to get on your knees and start washing some feet. It is an opportunity for us to help those who are struggling, who are fumbling, who are weak and scared become bold lions in the faith. Brothers and sisters, we are one another's keeper. We got each other's backs because all of us have holes in our armor and we need one another to stand firm. One of the clearest signs of unhealth in a local church is when its members lose sight of its primary mission. If the proclamation of the gospel and making disciples of Jesus is not the primary mission of the church, something else will creep in, won't it? You see, Paul had gotten wind of some type of factious activity going on in Philippi. We're not even told how far it had spread or what specifically had happened, but Paul does give us a glimpse into the window at the church in Philippi were two prominent women who were used of God with Paul in the ministry seemed to be at odds with one another. Look over at Philippians 4. Philippians 4, verse 2. Paul says this, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now again, it's not like the letter to the Corinthians where we actually have some of the problems spelled out. We're not told what the issue was, but apparently a disagreement between these two sisters had led to some type of division between them. Two women used of God to co-labor with Paul. I mean, these are mature women, lionesses in the faith, if you will. Look at verse 3, they co-labored with Paul. But somewhere along the way, their friendship became fractured. In other words, it got cold in the room. Their ministry frustrated. Their unity threatened. Evidently, it was serious enough that when Paul's writing from a Roman prison, he said, 
I entreat Euodia. I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. You know, I wonder if there is a Christian in your life today that you're currently at odds with. Maybe they go to another church. They love the same Jesus. They love the same Bible, but there is coldness between you. Or maybe there's a Christian even in this church that you have covenanted together with that you're currently not on good terms with. If there is, I want to challenge you. What's your plan to seek out reconciliation with that brother and sister? Have you thought about it? Have you prayed about it? Well, whatever you decide to do, I exhort you to ask the Lord to reveal any sin in your heart before you go confront them in their sin first. See, sometimes the biggest problem in our relationships is that we can't accurately see our own sin. That's the nature of pride, beloved. Pride can blind us. It helps us. It causes us to see the world through only our eyes and no one else's eyes. It's living a life thinking the world revolves around me and I. Pride can overcome an individual. Pride can overcome a local church. Andy Davis, senior pastor of First Baptist Church of Durham, North Carolina, I think gives a timely word for us as a new local church. He says this in his book, Revitalize. The greatest threat to Satan's dark kingdom is a healthy, Bible-believing, Christ-exalting, spirit-empowered local church. A dead church is no threat to him. And beloved, if that's true, and I think it is, how will Satan attack a healthy local church? Well, he can do it in a lot of ways. But one of the most common strategies that I've seen and read about are the schemes in Satan's playbook to plant seeds of pride. Pride is having an inflated view of yourself. It's an attitude that says, my rights and my privileges are what matters most. It's the enemy of humility. It's the blood that flows through the veins of selfishness and jealousy. Pride is the heart of Satan himself. The temptation that the serpent gave Adam and Eve, what was it? If you eat from this tree, you will what? Be like God. That's the ultimate form of pride. The Bible speaks very sternly about the dangers of pride. Proverbs 6, verse 17 says that haughty eyes are an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. 1 Peter 5, verse 5 says that God opposes the proud. James 3, it's a great uh, parallel text to this one. James 3, 14 to 16 says this about the destructive fruits of pride. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not be false, do not boast and be false to the truth. 
This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Did you hear that, beloved? Pride at its very core is demonic. It's satanic. It is the love language of the kingdom of darkness. It causes divisions. It causes dissensions. It causes heated and hateful arguments. You see, pride is not just somewhere out there somewhere. Jesus said in Mark 7, that pride is found in the human heart. In fact, pride is what is at the root of most quarrels and fights in our life. Think about the last argument you had in your home. All right, what about the argument before that one? All right, how about the one before that one? All right, how about the one before that one? All right, let's go to church. Think about the last argument you had with a church member or a pastor or about the pastor and about the church. Think about the last conversation you had with a friend or an old friend or someone you no longer called a friend and there was an argument. What caused it? James tells us in James 4, starting in verse 1, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Please tell us, James. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. C.J. Mahaney says, show me a church where there's division, where there's quarreling, and I'll show you a church where there's pride. CCBC, pray that we would be a humble church. Pray that I, as your pastor, would be a humble pastor. And pray that we might be an example of a church that seeks to get low so that Christ might be exalted. I have a dear pastor friend of mine. After being married for a few years and a pastor, he realized when he left work, he did not get his mind right before he got home. And after a few kids and a few, let's just say, knockdown, drag out arguments with his wife, he realized something needed to change. He calls it dying at the door. So on his ride from work to the home, he literally prays before he walks through the corridors of his house, Father, help me die to self before I come to the family to give myself to them. In other words, brothers and sisters, this can be applied in almost every area of our life. Before you make that phone call, die to self. Before you send that text message, die to self. Before you show up at the doors of 813 Fort Street and find your garnet chair, die to self. Pray that your pastor dies to self. Pray that I die to self for your benefit and for my wife's benefit. Well, look back with me in Philippians 2. Philippians chapter 2, Paul encourages them to be reminded of all the benefits they have in Christ. Verse 1. In verse 2, he wants them to complete his joy by remaining like-minded through staying focused on the same mission, that is, contending for the faith of the gospel. 
But then Paul just gets real practical, right? He, he says, I listen, let me just kind of show you what this looks like in kind of everyday language. Verses 3 and 4. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. Let me say that again. Humility isn't thinking less on yourself, being hard on yourself, tearing yourself down. That's actually another form of pride. But humility is thinking of yourself less. That's what he says right there in Philippians 2, 3, and 4. You're not saying that you care nothing for yourself, but you are showing a concern and a care for others even as more important than yourself. Who in your life models this type of humility well? Who is it when they're around you makes you feel very important and realize they never brought up themselves the whole time? I want to encourage you to go and tell that person that you admire the humility you see in their life because you're the benefit of it. Thank God for them. Encourage them. Humility is the opposite of pride. But let's just get honest. All of us struggle with pride. All of us have an extra dose of it somewhere. Squeeze me, you're going to get a lot of it. Listen, you might be visiting here today and you're new to church or maybe someone brought you to church or you're looking for a church to join and you're going, you know what? The last church I was at was full of snakes and vipers and a bunch of prideful people. Well, I don't want to um, give you a false alarm, but as you get to know us, you're going to see a people full of sin too because we all still struggle with pride too. The only difference is we've sought to join a church and sit under the word so that God can, by his spirit, kill the pride in our life. This is not a perfect church. We are a church that's wanting to fight for each other's joy and fight for each other's faith. We are all, by nature, pride junkies. And so how do we ever become humble? How do we ever fight for this type of humility in our life? It always begins with having an accurate view of God. John Calvin once said, It is evident that a man never attains to a true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of God and come down after such contemplation to look into himself. Again, C.J. Mahaney writes, Humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. That's the twin reality that all genuine humility is rooted in. God's holiness and our sinfulness. Without an honest awareness of both these realities, all self-evaluation will be skewed and will fail to either understand or practice true humility. So who is God? And who are we in light of him? Well, Paul then moves from the like-mindedness that we should have on the same mission, and then he says we should be focused also on the same person, the person and work of Jesus Christ, the God-man. So point number two, preserve unity in the church by staying focused on Christ, the God-man. So again, how does Paul say to the Philippians how you should combat pride in your life? 
uproot seeds of selfish ambition and vain glory. Well, again, he submits them to, or he directs their attention to, the perfect example to imitate and the perfect object of their highest worship. So who is the perfect example of humility to imitate? Look with me and starting in verse 5. He says, have this mind or this attitude or this mentality among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here in verses 5 to 8, the Apostle Paul is introducing to us what most likely was an early hymn in the church. And this was a hymn that believers would have sang, just like us on the Lord's Day, about the incarnation, the eternal Son of God who became a man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Here in Philippians 2, we read about one of the clearest passages that describe Jesus as both divine and human, eternally existing as deity and stepping into time, space, and human history as a real man. Jesus, who was born of the Virgin Mary, walked this very earth like you and me. Christ Jesus, the eternal Son of God, came from heaven to dwell on earth with sinful man. Now, I won't be able to answer every conceivable question you have about the incarnation. I can direct you some good resources. I can give you good articles, but we can know this from Philippians 2. Right there in verse 6, Paul says, though he was in the form of God. This denotes how Christ fully and perfectly embodies the image of the invisible God. He is the fullest and clearest expression of who God is. And that means this, that the pre-incarnational person of Christ who has always existed. Did you know that Jesus isn't merely a story about a baby in a barn in Bethlehem? He always existed. There was never a time that the Son of God was not. Jesus, being the form of God, displays all that makes God recognizable as God. He then goes on to say he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. Being equal with God, Christ did not lack any quality of being fully divine. You can look at passages like Colossians 1, 15 to 20, Hebrews 1, 1 to 4. It speaks about the deity of Christ and his sovereign role in creation and redemption. And we see this beautiful mystery of the triune God and the incarnation in the prologue of John's gospel. We read in John 1, verses 1 to 3, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now then Paul says he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. But verse 7, made himself Nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Your translation might have rendered, he 
emptied himself. Paul now begins to transition in this early church hymn, not to the subtraction of Christ from being divine to human, but rather the addition of being divine and human all at the same time. You see, Christ did not exploit. He didn't take advantage of the rights of being deity that he already possessed. That's what it means that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, something to be kept only for himself. Rather, get this, he humbly moves towards sinners to do what most benefited them. That's why, beloved, the very impulse to serve others is the heart of deity. The impulse to serve others is at the heart of deity. Did not Jesus tell his own disciples, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Matthew 20, verse 28. You see, in Christian theology, I'm about to take you to the deep end, if I haven't already, with a term that could be a good discussion over lunch today. The teaching on the incarnation refers to the hypostatic union. This is the mysterious joining of two natures, divine and human, into one person, Jesus Christ. Earlier in the service, I asked you to stand as we recited together from the Ligonier Statement on Christology the following words. We confess the mystery and wonder of God made flesh and rejoice in our great salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. With the Father and the Holy Spirit, the Son created all things, sustains all things, and makes all things new. Truly God, he became truly man. Two natures in one person. And this is precisely what the Bible teaches. John begins to unfold in his open prologue something about the Word. The Logos. In John 1, verse 14, it says, And the Word, who eternally existed as God, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the Son, only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, the emptying, the giving of Christ, of himself, was not the removal of his deity, but rather the selfless humiliation of God the Son taking on human flesh as a lowly servant. The eternal Son of of God, who received all glory, all praise, all prestige in eternity past, John 17, 5, stepped down into time, into space, into human history, and willfully subjected himself to the limitations and weaknesses and suffering of humanity. He was, Paul says in verse 7, born in the likeness of of men. What does it mean that he was born in the likeness of men? Jesus was born of a woman, Galatians 4.4. 4. Jesus had flesh and blood like us, Hebrews 2.14 and 2.17. Jesus got hungry, Matthew 4.2. 2. 
Jesus got tired, John 4, 6. Jesus faced temptations to sin, Hebrews 4, 15. Jesus faced poverty, Luke 9, 58, and 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Jesus suffered physically and unjustly, 1 Peter 2, 21. Jesus suffered emotionally, John eleven thirty five. 35. He was, as the prophet Isaiah said, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, Isaiah 53. And Jesus submitted even to human authorities, without being disobedient to his heavenly father's authorities, Luke 2 and Mark 12. Though he was truly a man with an earthly body like ours, he did not inherit a sinful nature like ours. Being born of a virgin, he had a body like ours, but he did not crave nor desire sin like we do. Nonetheless, Jesus, as a man, became our perfect mediator. He became our faithful high priest and intercessor. He became man, beloved, in order to bring us back to God. I always laugh when people say, I found Jesus. Last time I checked, Jesus wasn't lost. You were. You see, man was created in God's image, but we sinned against God. And the whole human race stands condemned before this holy God. The only way sinful man could ever be reconciled back to a holy God is by God showing his mercy and his grace through sending his son, Jesus Christ, to humbly serve, to humbly suffer, to humbly satisfy the righteous wrath of God against sinners. Why is Jesus so important to our faith? How is Jesus' humility the cure for our pride? Because Jesus is the only person to ever perfectly obey God. He says there in verse 8, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The cross here speaks of the crucifixion. One of the worst forms of torture and punishment exerted on a despised criminal in that day. It was a shameful death. It was a horrific scene for human eyes to ever see. And it was, as one Roman philosopher put it, the most cruel and disgusting punishment. But what we see in this passage is the perfect example of heavenly humility. The glorious Son of God died as a man under one of the goriest forms of death. And death and a punishment we deserved. Christ died as a substitute for our sins. He humbly sacrificed his life for our salvation. And he did that for everyone who would turn from their sins and trust in him. Christ's obedience to the will of his heavenly Father to atone for the sins of rebels like you and me is the ultimate display of humility. Christ died, but he rose again. Which means Jesus is our perfect example to imitate, but more than that, he's the perfect object of our highest worship. Look with me at verses 9 to 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, 
so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul moves now from the lowly humiliation of Christ to the highly exalted and praise of Christ. Now, the significance of Paul's words here about the universal recognition of Jesus as Lord is crucial. The Greek word there is kurios. In the Greek Septuagint, this speaks of the God of Israel, the Lord of hosts, Jehovah, Yahweh. He says that Jesus has been highly exalted. This is an honor that only God alone reserved for himself all throughout the Old Testament. In Psalm 70, or 97, verse 9, says this, For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Earlier in the service, our brother Gunnar read from Isaiah 45, which contains a cosmic renunciation of false gods. A hopeless salvations put in anything else other than Yahweh. And there, there in Isaiah 45, it's the one true God who created the heavens and the earth. It's the one true God who is the world's only Savior. It's the one whom God says about himself through the prophet, by myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. And Paul here in Philippians 2 states this mind-blowing fact that because of Christ's perfect life and his lowly humiliation in obedience to the will of his Father, he has now been exalted with the title of kurios, Lord. In the Greek Septuagint, which Paul would have used to quote from Isaiah 45, 23, which refers to Yahweh, the creator, covenant God of Israel, Paul then humbly and boldly declares, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. To honor Jesus, the Son of God, is to honor the one true God. That's why it matters that you belong to a church that believes that Jesus is the only way to God. Christ has been given a name above every other name. And salvation is found in no other name except in Christ. Acts 4, verses 11 and 12. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Beloved, any religious group that denies that Jesus is the only way to be saved is a dead religion. I don't care how much they quote the Bible. Jesus is God the Son incarnate, and it's Jesus' name alone that has been given among men by which we must be saved. It is all of Jesus, the Jesus of this Bible that we worship. Any other Jesus is a false God. To worship Christ and bring him glory is to worship the God 
of glory. When you honor the Son, you honor the Father. Beloved, studying the incarnation is not about Christmas cards or debates with Jehovah's Witnesses. No, studying the incarnation is to humble us of our sinful pride and to elevate our worship to God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. One God who exists in three persons. What did Jesus' humility in obeying his Father Show us. We're going to talk more about this tonight, so come back if you're interested. It shows us that humility is voluntarily entering into someone's life amidst their sin, suffering, and need to do them good, even if it doesn't benefit you immediately. If you're interested to learn more about that, come back tonight at 5. When a church truly worships Jesus as the God-man, they will begin to serve one another with humility like Jesus. Christ became what we are so that we might become what he is. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that we walk away from Philippians chapter 2 with conviction of our pride, but also an elevated sense of awe and wonder. Lord, I pray that you would cause us to be a Christ-centered, Christ-exalting church that seeks to study and meditate and learn more of what it means to be found in Christ and what it means to love and honor him. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.